Welcome to the Value Perspective podcast on decision-making. We're a group of value investors working together on the global value team here at Schroders. As investors, we have to tackle decision-making in uncertain environments every day. In this podcast series, we speak to people from other walks of life who also share the challenge of making decisions in complex and uncertain environments. We cover topics such as how to think in probabilities, tools for overcoming psychological biases, and how we can learn and improve decision-making in complex environments. We hope you enjoy it. This podcast is for investment professionals only. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation, or recommendation for any of the funds, services, or products, or to adopt any investment strategy. On today's podcast, we have international rugby referee Wayne Barnes. Wayne holds the record for a number of premiership appearances and has refereed at a number of World Cups and numerous premiership finals, including one where he famously sent off the then England captain for calling him a cheat. He mixes his refereeing job with a career in law. For those who haven't seen Wayne in action, worth searching on YouTube for 10 minutes of Wayne Barnes being Wayne Barnes. Wayne also has his own YouTube channel where he explains the rules of rugby using his kids' toys and is worth taking a look. We're very grateful he's joined us all the way from South Africa, where he's currently on tour with the Lions. Representing the home team today is Ben Arnold, Paul Griffin, a fund manager on the European Equities team, and myself, Andrew Evans. It's worth explaining the genesis of the idea to get Wayne onto the podcast. Ben Arnold came into the office after the France versus Wales game in the Six Nations in 2021. And we got into a discussion about how clear and transparent the decision-making process was. Wayne Barnes was video referee that day and worked clearly and precisely with the referee, Luke Pearce. It was then that we decided it'd be great to have him on our decision-making podcast. During the podcast, we touch on preparation for decision-making, how to deal with decisions when there's a great deal of external pressure and his biggest mistake as a rugby referee. We hope you enjoy it. Hey, it's Emily. For the non-rugby fans amongst us, I thought I'd explain the concept of the Lions, which comes up in this episode as Wayne is currently with them on tour in South Africa. The Lions is a super team composed of the best rugby players from four nations, England, Ireland, Scotland and Wales. That team then tours every four years playing a different Southern Hemisphere team on rotation. They go between South Africa, Australia and New Zealand. Right now it's South Africa's turn as they host the Lions playing eight matches over six weeks. So, Wayne, really excited to have you on the show. Thank you so much uh, for joining us. Um, maybe we can just kick off. Could you start by how you got into refing? You know, refing isn't always the obvious thing that people dream of when they, they're growing up. So how did that all start? Um, well, thanks for having me on, Andrew, first of all. Um, it's great to follow so many, you know, wonderful names and wonderful stories on your podcast and just having listened to them over the last uh, few weeks. Um, but yeah, I, I am a I am a referee. I'm also a, a barrister, so you know, a referee and a, and a lawyer. So you can imagine, pretty popular. Um, but um, refereeing came about, you know, by a train of events, I suppose. So I, I come from an area called the Forest of Dean, which is in Gloucestershire. Um, and for anyone who knows the Forest of Dean, um, it's got it's got a lot of links to the, to the Welsh community. Um, we, we've got things like marching brass bands, male voice choirs, um, and 
you know, an, an adoration of rugby. And so I, I grew up, you know, in a rugby playing community, played from five or six at my local rugby club called Bream, um, as in the fish, and, um, and played from, you know, all the way up through the junior ranks. But then I got injured playing um, and um, it meant that I would be out of playing for about 12 to 18 months. Um, and my school teacher at the time was a, was a referee um, down at White Cross, and, um, which is a little comprehensive down in, in a town called Lydney. And he said to me, well, you know, you can't play the game, but you can still run around and maybe you can do a little bit of refereeing. And um, so I would ref some of like the inter kind of class matches. Um, he would referee some of them as well. Um, and then a friend of my dad's was a referee as well in Gloucestershire. And he said, well, if you can do it at school, why don't you come and try and referee some local Gloucestershire rugby? So he would go around and um, and referee the first 15s around the Gloucestershire region and I would do some of the third 15s and um, as a you know as a, as a young lad you know it was, it was great because you had a couple of pounds traveling expenses and um, one of the lovely traditions of rugby particularly in Gloucestershire is after the match um, you get given um, a tankard so you go in there you know to have your food and, and a drink and you get given a tankard um, and you could have a couple of free pints now, I was only 15, so I thought this was brilliant. Um, and so that kind of like my, my love of um, my rugby started there. And, and then, I, you know, just like, like a player, um, you, you get tried out. At the, you know, you do the third 15. If you do well for a few weeks, you might get tried a second game, a second team game, and, you know, then up to the first team. And then you move through the leagues. And, um, and that's what happened with me. And, you know, I refereed my first game as a 15-year-old. Um, and then by the time I was at university, um, up at that really well-known rugby-playing university of uh, East Anglia, um, I, um, I would play on a Wednesday and I would referee on a Saturday. And then I made the, what's called the national panel of, um, of the RFU um, as a 21-year-old, which at the time was the youngest ever to make it. So that's a top 50 referees in England. So, and then again, you, you go through the ranks, you go through the you know, the likes of the the national leagues and then into the championship and up to the premiership. So it's all, all it was all always that that progression. Um, but always at the same time juggling my kind of my training or my career as a criminal barrister. So that was kind of the background. And and then I ended up being employed by the RFU in 2005 um, as a professional referee. And again, still juggling uh, the career um, as a as a criminal uh, barrister and as a then as a, a professional referee in the, in the rugby football union who's my employer has always been very good allow, about allowing me to continue um, that career um, and that's what I'm what I'm doing now you know juggling those two roles um, a bit remotely at the moment because I'm sitting over in in South Africa um, but still trying to juggle the two fantastic no thanks very much uh, for, for that intro and you've got uh, representatives on both sides of the borders uh, here today. So um, yeah, there's no no allegiance um, one way or the other. Um, in terms of your decision-making process, given that's the, the whole theme of the podcast series we're, we're talking about, but maybe you could just kind of talk about how you think about decision-making. Do you have like a very rigid process? You know, is it a case that you're going into each and every game with the set, I'm going to follow the rules to the letter, 
or are you thinking about it more situa situationally? So could, could you just kind of talk a little bit about your decision-making process? Um, well, decision-making doesn't start on the pitch. Decision-making for me starts, well, starts at the start of your career because you're building a, a wealth of experience. Um, but the key to um, top-class decision-making is all around preparation. Um, and it's something where, you know, in a lead-up to any match, I would spend a huge amount of time preparing myself for what that game um, I'm about to go into might look like. Now, what that means in practice is not just me sitting there, you know, looking at the past two or three games. It's using experts across the game to help with that preparation. So if you think about a game of rugby, there's so many different um, kind of aspects of the game. There's um, the technical side, there's the scrum, there's the line out, but there's attack, there's defence, there's kicking. And so in, in a lead up to any uh, big international, I will use experts in that field. So not just referees, um, but scrum coaches, um, attack coaches, directors of rugby to help me paint a picture about what the game I'm about to walk into might look like. Because if you're going into you know, any meeting, you know, if I'm going into a, a court case, I want to be fully prepared. I want to be aware of everything that might pop up. And so I can prepare for it. I can think about my strategy for it. Um, and also from a rugby point of view, if there's an issue that I see with a team, so for example, at the kickoff, they're sometimes in front of the, um, of the kicker. Uh, take that real basic example. If I can speak to the coach on a Tuesday or Wednesday and say, look, we've identified that your right winger on the kickoff is in front of um, the kickoff on three out of the four kicks, then he can tell his right winger to stay behind the line and then as a spectator, you know, you're sitting at home, Andrew, watching the game, you don't hear my whistle blow three or four times. What, what you actually see is more rugby. And so all of that preparation work um, adds, to, first of all, adds to my ability not to blow the whistle, but also it prepares me for what I'm about to see. Um, and so I will know, you know, what, what kind of times um, and what kind of areas teams will kick. I'll know roughly what they look like in defence. So when things happen during a match, nothing surprises me. Um, so you've got that element of, of preparation, which helps my decision-making on the game. But also, um, I've probably taken that a, a step further um, around preparing for, you know, the nuclear events, you know, that those that never happen. And, you know, your, your rugby fans on, on this podcast, we, we'll all remember, you know, the Bloodgate incident back in, I think, well, it's over 10 years ago now, isn't it? I think back in 2009, 2010. Um, and I was, I was sitting there watching that, you know, and we, we recall that, you know, there was allegations of cheating and blood capsules being used. And I, and I thought to myself, look, I, I started to think, well, how would I deal with that? You know, what would I say? How would I say, you know, like you do in a courtroom, I, I prepare for those um, situations. What would you say if your client did X, Y, or Z? Or what would you do if the, um, if your main prosecution witness didn't kind of um, come up to, you know, what you were expected for him or her to say? So I thought about that, that Quinns versus um, Leinster game. It was, you know, how am I, um, how would I deal with that? but you never really expect it to happen to you. Um, but then, you know, in my career, there has been, you know, those nuclear events, which you never want to happen, but you kind of prepare for. You, know, you take France versus Wales, um, I think 2000 and um, maybe 2017, um, when we had a 100-minute game, we had allegations of um, 
of biting. We had allegations of cheating and um, saying that players were injured and they weren't all being played out, you know, on terrestrial TV in front of millions of people um, at home watching that. Um, and if you hadn't prepared for those situations, you could easily be swallowed up with that. So, you know, about decision making, you've got to think about what potential decisions you might have to make and, and plan for those and plan for those, you know, those nuclear um, kind of incidents. Um, and so, you know, that, you know, in answer to your question, how do you go about decision making? Well, it starts about all all beforehand it all starts around preparing for those decisions to make sure when you have to make them you've got the best opportunity of getting them right if i could follow up that's a fascinating um example of that the sort of days and days of presentation you know what one of the things that we've been discussing wayne is that in the last five ten years you know, the rules of the rugby rules of rugby have become ever more complicated um in some cases it seems ever more stringent and they're certainly changing all the time and i suppose there's a danger that the flow of the game can be compromised by that um and so i suppose this presentation uh, this sort of preparation five ten days beforehand is, do you think that's just absolutely key to make sure that the rhythm of the game and the flow of the game um you know kind of persists and we don't have this sort of stop start um kind of uh, rhythm that, that can often happen when when rules are sort of overbearing i think i think there's two things on that paul first of all um and this is the one thing i definitely took away from um being a barrister and, and taken into um being a referee you know when you go into you know uh, to meet your client for the first time and that can be like in the cells of a of a court you know there's three things that your client wants and the first and perhaps the most important is a total comprehensive knowledge of the law because they don't want you not to know what you're charged with and they don't want you not to be able to defend them. They want you to know that law or those laws inside out. Um, I think they also want you to be able to listen um, because they're going to have questions, they're stressed, they're in a stressful situation and they want you to be able to communicate and communicate quite succinctly without overbearing them with too much detail. And you think about that on the rugby pitch, I'm going into a changing room um, 30 minutes, 60 minutes before a match. Um, and, you know, sometimes you haven't even met the captain before. Um, it might be the first time that you actually meet them is in the change room an hour before kickoff. You know, one of my first Bledders Low Cup matches, the Australia-New Zealand game, I'd never met the captains before. My first time I'm meeting the captain of Australia and New Zealand was in the changing room of um, in Eden Park. And you're like, well, what does that captain want? And it's it's the same, isn't it? Comprehensive knowledge of the law. Um, you've got to be able to listen, listen to their questions and reply and answer their questions, you know, honestly and succinctly. So, you know, there's so many compar comparables between my, my days as a barrister and my days as a referee. Um, and yes, rugby is, is a complex um, game. Um, and, you know, that's why you do, do need that comprehensive knowledge. But you also have to understand that um, rugby isn't just around the laws. It's about the application of laws because they're not that clear in times because there are grey areas. You know, a real straightforward example. The law says that you can't tackle someone when they're in the air. You know, everyone knows that, you know, player jumps for the ball, you can't tackle them until their feet lands on the, on the floor. 
But we also know that when a player jumps into score a try in the corner and both of their feet are off the ground, that they can be tackled, even though that they're off the ground. So there are those grey areas of rugby. So not only do you have to understand that what the laws say, you have to understand how they're implemented. And I, I, and I don't confess that I know all the answers to that. And that's why I think rugby is really taking huge strides on that by doing lots of kind of working groups and lots of um, kind of crossover um, information exchange between referees, coaches and players. So... Um, 18 months ago, there was concerns around how the breakdown was was being coached, being played, being refereed. So a group of individuals from all of those um, aspects, and we put some medics in there as well to you know make sure that player welfare remains um, you know at the forefront of everything that we do. Um, we we started to discuss how we could just change or tweak the breakdown, not necessarily laws because there were no law changes. But we did change um, some of the ways that we were asking referees to referee it and which in turn meant coaches and players just had to adapt. But that wasn't referees leading that. That was coaches and players saying, we think this is what needs to change. Um, and all of that is to going towards making the game safer, um, easier um, to, to watch as a spectator, you know, to, to make it more understandable. Um, but also not just for continuity's sake, because, you know, if a player like a defensive player in a strong body position, a jackler, you know, trying to steal the ball at the breakdown, does that really well. That's a skill in itself. And that might mean that the game stops because he gets a penalty and the ball's turned over. So it's not just all about continuity, um, but it is about making the game more understandable and more user-friendly. And I think that's what we're seeing more and more now is that cross kind of party discussion exercise um, around improving the game of rugby. Wayne, I'm really interested in, in the grey area that you talked about there. Could, could you maybe talk a little bit more about that? Because it's something we encounter every day in our day jobs, um, those grey areas or the ambiguity. How, how do you approach that? Do, is it any different from how you'd approach something which is more black and white? Or do you have a different set of parameters about how you approach that? It's a lot easier when it's black and white, isn't it? Because... The, you, the, the foot's either on the line or it's not. Or, um, you know, you, you take the criminal analogy again, you either um, gave money to someone or, or you didn't. You know, it's when it's that grey area of intention or recklessness, you know, that's when it becomes more difficult to interpret. And that's why you, um, we as a group of referees, um, and as I said, I, I'm in South Africa at the moment, you know, as part of the... The, the Lions Test series is we're spending a lot of time together discussing those grey areas. You know, when does a knock-on become a deliberate knock-on, or when does a a dangerous tackle be, go from a yellow card to a red card? And so we're trying to give um, each other as referees, but also the game, some clear kind of uh, I guess parameters or some clear guidelines on what would make a knock-on turn into a deliberate knock-on or what would um, a yellow card um, look like and what would a red card look like. And that's not just the referees. Again, this is using the experience of players and coaches and medics and referees to say, right, okay, if we see these types of situations, this will look like a red card. And let's, let's take red cards and high co head contacts as a, a real nice example of that. If someone um, is tackled, and the, there is direct contact to the head 
and it's with a lot of force, you know, so you're running from a distance, which would create more force. Um, you hit them direct, which would suggest more force in an indirect contact. And you hit them with a hard point, a shoulder, you know, a, a, a swinging arm, you know, that would suggest a real high degree of danger. And you're probably going to get red carded for that. But there are times when you would mitigate that. And so we then have a list of mitigating factors of things like as a player dropped in height considerably, because if you think about it, if you're aiming to hit someone in the torso and all of a sudden his height changes because he's tackled from behind or he ducks to uh, avoid contact. That might be a reason not to red card them or, you know, a last minute step inside. You think that the players going to um, going infield and all of a sudden he steps into the blind side. That changes the dynamics of the situation. So all of those things help make the decision making process. So the game or the fans sitting at home understand it a little bit more. And I think, you know, companies like BT and the BT commentary team are doing a great kind of uh, service to the game, explaining that, you know, and. Channel 5, I, I do some work with Channel 5 commentating because they want to help educate, you know, the general general public about, you know, a complex sport um, and trying to demystify some of it. So that idea of, yes, there are black and white. Is, is the ball in touch? Is it not? You know, has it touched a line? Has it not? That That is black and white. But the difficulty with... Um, with rugby at times is there are lots of grey areas and that's why we're trying to make sure that when uh, one referee makes a decision, um, he's got a clear set of guidelines. So if it happens a week after, so you take test one of the lines, you'll get a very similar um, kind of um, answer or um, a decision in week two. And then if you turn in for week three, you should get the same types of decisions. And that's what we're striving for. And it's what coaches want, what players want is that, you know, that ever kind of, you know, holy grail of the of, of consistency. Wayne, you talk about the, the audience there a couple of times. I think for the majority of guests that we've had on the podcast, the, the wider world only sees the outcome of their decisions, whether that's an Olympic sailor plotting a route during during a race or a, a World Series poker player playing a hand. But for you guys actually refereeing these games, and it's, it's a feature that's come into the game only in the last few years, that the whole world get to look at both your outcome, the outcome of your decision, but also the decision-making process, whether that be in the stadium or, as you said, on, on, on TV and at home and, and with commentators. Does that change the nature, do you think, of how you're making decisions? I think you're aware of it, um, Ben. So if you think about the, the the big decisions of a game tend to be when the, the video referee, the TMO is involved, there is that discussion between a referee and a, and a video referee. And that's why that preparation point, again, is key. You've got to work over those scenarios. You've got to think about um, your language. And because we, we know that our, our voices is, is made public. And I think that's right, by the way. I think um, that the audience being very much part of, um, of the game is what makes rugby quite special. Um, so not only do you know that there's a TMO decision taking place, but you understand the thought process. And so you can be sitting at home thinking, I might disagree with that and I don't like that decision, but I understand the way that they've got there. And particularly around those grey areas, you know, that, and that might be that, Ben, you and I think, you know, that they haven't hit him direct or her directly in the head from a tackle. You might think, well, actually, I think it's brushed the, sh the shoulder first before hitting the head. Whereas I might think, I don't see that brush of the shoulder. So that's going to be, you know, our eyes 
just telling us what we think. But if you understand where my decision-making process comes from, at least we, you know, we can understand how the referees got to a decision. So, um, and, you know, I've done a lot of work with other sports, you know, I, I was really interesting to follow the VAR trials in football. And um, I presented um, to IFAB, um, which is the International Football Association Board's kind of, and they're the lawmakers of the game. I presented to um, the PGMOL, which is the, the top class referees in the Premiership, to explain our learnings from rugby around the use of video technology. And the one thing I think is really important in rugby, and that works, and I, but I think we can go further, is the idea of making sure people understand that there's a video review and understand the decision-making process um, behind it, rather than just being told that's not a try or that is a red card or that is a penalty. Um, so, yeah, very much aware of that. And that's very much part of my preparation around um, working with a TMO and understand how we'll we'll interact during a game and making sure that we are calibrated on to, you know the same kind of issues. Wayne, we just talked there about the the TMO and and that collaborative approach to those big incidents in in, in a game. Um, but what kind of constant um, conversations are going on between you and the, and the touch judges and the TMO, the kind of the broader referee team? just sort of throughout the game, you know, are, are you literally always talking to one another to sort of determine about those kind of smaller incidents where there is perhaps a bit of, uh, you know, um, it's a sort of grey zone, you know, do, do you constantly get something in your ear as the game is, is flowing and that helps you to sort of either let things roll or actually pull the play back? Yeah, um, so the, the conversations with your team, because obviously you, you can't referee a game of rugby on your own anymore. It, it is a, a four-person, actually it's more than that because you've got the sideline officials as well, but it is a, a four-person on-field kind of job now. Um, you, the referee, the two assistant referees and the, and the video referee. Um, and that starts in that preparation phase. And that might start months and months before a tournament. So the, the four of us who are here doing the, the, the Lions prior to the uh, the tests have been chatting for six to eight weeks to make sure we are calibrated. And so when something, one of those big decisions that's take, you know, a head contact again, when that comes onto the screen, we are kind of using the same kind of language and we are using, you know, the same kind of framework to make sure that there isn't that kind of really awkward time on a, on a pitch where you might be disagreeing. And um, then during a match, I'm a big advocate of um, of communication between the team. Not so much it's a running commentary, but I need to know what other people are seeing and what they're saying to players. So, for example, if they think that uh, the team in white are getting quite close to the um, offside line um, around the breakdown, um, but they don't think that they've overstepped the mark yet, I, I want to know that so I can prevent that. Once again, back to that idea that the less I have to blow my whistle, the more rugby you get to see at home. So we would be talking a lot around that. We would be talking around what pitches we're seeing, take it as scrum. It might be at the last two scrums um, that tight head was under pressure and he started to change his angle, but it didn't cause a collapse, but just so you're aware of it for the next scrum. So at the next scrum, I've got the picture um, ready to kind of think, well, this is what's happened at the last two scrums. I can maybe rectify that issue before the third scrum. So all of that um, kind of information sharing to make sure that my decision-making or, or the, the assistant referee's decision-making is, um, you know, is, is spot on. Um, and the, the other thing um, 
around that uh, is when you don't communicate is often when um, you get the poor decisions or the decisions um, that don't often kind of align with what you've agreed before the match. And it might be that you think that the, the video referee is looking at something and they, they think you're talking about something else. And so a, a nice example of that will be if there's a player injured on the field um, and I'm not quite sure what's caused that injury, I might ask the TMO to check that just to say, Number, there's a player down there injured. Can you can you just check that it wasn't done by any you know illegal means? Now, even just like I'm just thinking about the terminology that I've used there. If you're not specific about which player's injured and whereabouts on the pitch they are, the video referee might be clearing a different injury. Because how many times do we watch a game and there's a player down from the white team and there's a player down from the red team? And if I've just said, can you check that injury, please? The video referee might check the injury, which was caused by total accidental um, collision, but miss the one that's been caused by a dangerous tackle. So being really specific in your communication, not not assuming anything, making sure um, that everyone's aware what you're talking about. So, and we had this discussion yesterday, you know, wrapping up one of the games is don't assume we're looking um, at the, the same um, offside unless you're really specific. So if you're saying, at the last breakdown, there might have been an offside. That's not that clear. But if you're saying on the 22, we think that number seven was offside, can you just check that, is a lot more easier for a TMO to follow. So the more specific you are in communication, the less chance you've got of that falling down and missing something that you really need to get. Brilliant. Um in this preparation that is obviously is clearly going on uh, weeks, uh, if not months, ahead of, of games, um, how do you allow the context of the, the game to affect what could be your potential approach to, to the sort of decision making within the game? So I'm thinking of sort of either weather, you know, whether you're playing in a kind of rainy Eden Park or whether you're playing under the, the roof in a closed uh, environment in Millennium Stadium, but also, you know, the certain personalities that may be coming up against each other in the game, or whether it's a sort of final or the third test, if you like, in the Lions, where there may be a lot of tension. You know, you have to sort of anticipate um, some key sort of conflict areas of the game. So just just how you how you sort of take on board all of those different variables will be uh, interesting to hear. Um, so those key contests are exactly why I would use, um, you know, specialists in coaching, not just refereeing, but a, a specialist scrum coach to tell me, um, this is where I think the key battle will be in this scrum. Um, and these are the two personalities who are who are scrummage against each other. And then we would look at pictures around what um, a tight head looks like, in the, it, a specific tight head looks like in a strong position against a loose head who looks like in his strong position. And then you would say, well, when the picture changes, this, is, this might be the reason why. So you would look at those specific um, specific battles um, you would look at, for example, contests in the air, and I'm sure we'll we'll see some of those contests in the air during the, the Lions series, you know, with the, the likes of Connor Murray and Fafta Klerk kicking the ball, um, as they do with those wonderful box kicks. There will be challenges in the air, and we, we know that certain players are great in the air, and we'll be saying, right, okay, let's let's make sure that they, they start on side, let's make sure they time their run. All of those battles which you get that expertise um, as part of your preparation coming from experts, coaches, um, you know, and um, directors of rugby who I use as part of my preparation. But you've also got, you know, 
referees, just like players, need that assistance around um, like psychological sports, sports scientists. I still work with a, a sports psychologist um, in the lead up to, to most games around making sure that my mind's clear as well, because it's really easy to make a decision on a, on a clip. So if you put a clip up in front of me now and say, well, right, Wayne, is that a rolling away penalty or is that a holding on penalty? It's often, you know, it, one will go to the attack, one will go to defence. Really simple in front of a computer with no pressure, a glass of water in my hand to say, yeah, that's a straightforward holding on penalty. The difficulty is when you put emotion into, into the game. So all of a sudden, and it's not such a, a sad um it's so, so, so sad that we're going to be going into a Lions without any fans. But if you imagine being down at the Millennium Stadium, 78,000 people all cheering, roof closed, screaming, hollering um, for that decision, there is um, a lot of pressure on a referee because we, we know that. We know this from um, sports psychologists that we want to belong with the pack. We want to belong. Um, and so it's really easy to give the... The, the popular decision. Um, and so my, my challenge at every single um, test match, every single big match, every single match really, is to make sure I referee with a clear mind. Um, so I go into each decision trying to do it without the idea of um, I, I want to be popular or I, I don't want to upset someone. And that, that's a huge challenge for a referee. And um, as soon as you start thinking, oh, I wonder what the coach thought about that decision, or I wonder if um, my selector who decides who does what games is going to be happy with that. As soon as you start thinking about that, you're not concentrating on the game and you're not concentrating on, you know, having that clear mind and I'll write on my hand, um, reset, just what works for me. Um, And every time I start thinking about things which I don't need to think about, those distractions, I'll look at that and I'll smile because I know I'm doing it. I've caught myself and it starts, starts you off again to think, right, um, doesn't matter that I've <laughs> um, given three penalties in a row. I just got to keep concentrating on making sure I make the right decision at every single breakdown. And, you know, that, that's, that's a tough ass. You know, there's 10, 10 scrums in a game, maybe 20 line outs and about 220 breakdowns. So there's 250 decisions you've got to make or non-decisions you've got to make um, every single game. You know, so 250 decisions in 80 minutes and the ball's in play around 40 to 45 minutes. So you're talking, you know, 250 decisions in 40 minutes. Um, so you've got to do that every single, um, every single decision you're making. And that is the, the, the biggest challenge um, of, of refereeing, I think. I guess with those uh, 250 decisions, uh, I know you're a top, top referee, but I can't imagine you get 250 right every time. So um, <laughs> how do you think about kind of getting better? How Do you go back and watch? What do you think about mistakes when you see them occurring in the game with, you know, there's 20 of those 250 which are wrong versus 10? How, how do you think about that? And how are you appraised by third parties? Um, so for me, um, preparation in, um, part of preparation is um, review. Because if you review properly, um, you prepare better for the next game. I mean, it's, it's interesting. Not only if, do I use um, coaches from in rugby, I've used some high-performance coaches and managers of different sports. Um, and, you know, one of the things that was constantly, uh, a constant theme when I was talking to those individuals is that idea of 
um, having a, a like a real world leading review culture um, to be part of your preparation. You know, and we all do that, whatever job we do again, isn't it? You know, you strive to do better on the next occasion. You take those, those learnings from what you've just done. Um, and I start that process in the changing room after a game. So I, I will, you know, have my shower. I usually sit there with my team of officials, two assistant referees, video referee. We'll have a shower, you know, you clear your thoughts a little bit, you know, get your thoughts together and we'll sit there with a beer and ask ourselves, how do we get better for next time? Um, and that might be around positioning, that might be around communication, um, and that just might be, I need to have a look at that decision again because I don't, I don't think I've got it right, and this, is, this might be the reason why. Um, so we start that real like rough review at that point, um, and, and, and I think that, that shows a willingness to grow um, and, and get better, I think. And, I, and we've taken that into um, the law firm, which I'm part of now, um, to say, you know, after every um, case, every, every time we close a case, I, I don't think lawyers were the best at, at reviewing. I think it's kind of like, let's park that one, let's move on to the next one. Whereas we have a review culture within our law firm. So we will sit down and we will talk to the client we will talk to each other. Um, we will bring someone who wasn't involved in, in that case, inside that case to help kind of manage that review kind of um, uh, culture to say, right, what are we going to do next time? How do we do that slightly better next time? What, what do, and also what, what worked well and what do we want to can, you know, and keep hold of to move that forward? And it's exactly what I'm doing um, as a referee. So, this weekend, I was involved in two games, one on Friday, one on Saturday. We spent um, we spent that you know five ten minutes in the changing room afterwards, um, but then we spent yesterday reviewing those two games, talking about communication, talking about positioning, talking about you know how we can improve for Wednesday's game. You know, it's Monday now, so we've done that review on Sunday. Now it's about that preparation up to Wednesday. Um, and what's, what's nice, um, what, what I like to do is, um, I'm sure we've all read a lot of Matthew Syed, I, I know I do, but I'm reading his uh, most recent book, I think Rebel Ideas. Um, you know, you don't put similar personalities in the room as well, you know, make sure that you, you put people who do challenge you. And, you know, that, that in itself exposes you and opens you up a little bit because you don't want people disagreeing with you, but unless you are willing to put people in the room who um have different personality traits who has different views on the game then you'll find you'll you'll have a blind spot and that's what i i keep trying to do is to change those people around me to make sure i'm i'm trying to find um you know what those blind spots are and cover them um so yeah massively believe in reviews and you've got to be honest as well like the biggest critic of um of a, of a referee will be the referee themselves they don't need um social media or external kind of voices telling us you know whether we've missed a, a knock on or got a decision wrong we, we'll know that um pretty soon um having watched the game so you know if, if you're honest with yourself and you put a, a review culture around you i think that is that that desire to get better Speaking of, of, of reviews in, in previous games, we're, we'd just like to actually go back to the French-Wales game in the spring in the, in the Six Nations. And we're going to play a clip from that game where uh, you are the video referee and, and Luke Pierce is the on-pitch on referee. And for context, this is where 
uh, for, for those that don't remember, this is where Wales were playing France uh, in Paris uh, to win the Grand Slam, which had been a, an absolute historic event for, for, for Wales. And it's a very tense game. Uh, and this clip in particular is from the, the 67th minute where France actually score a try. But then a few minutes later, the, the try is cancelled and a French player is subsequently sent off. Uh, now, it's, a, it's an unfair outcome if you're a French fan, um, but if you're a Welsh fan, you're very supportive of it. We're going to play the clip now because we really feel the discussion between yourself and Luke Pearce highlighted uh, a very clear process of decision-making, uh, which, which was really interesting. So we're going to have a, play that clip now and then have a chat afterwards. For the French okay. side, but Brice Doulan just manages to roll over and dot down to get this French right, side back off, in the please. game. So, Bounty, how we have it, we have an advantage. Um, number five was not rolling away back on the five metre area. And then we've got on field try back here. Um, but you're going to show me a net grab by a French player in the build up to the try, are you? I'm um, sorry, mate, I've just got lots of talk in my ear. Um, say that again. I'm about to show you um, a clear out on red one. The clear out makes contact around the head area and takes him backwards in the clear out. Okie doke then. So we've got an official review for potential foul play on the clear out on Wales 1. Yeah, you see that. I'm not sure if you've got those pictures there. Can I see? Um, you'll see one is competing over the ball. He is moved by the hand of red five, uh, blue five, which is around his head. Yeah, that's fair. So let's just get so a little bit of I'm still under advantage against five. Um, and I was going to warn them if it's no try because the amount of penalties. Just to make it clear, that net grab is whilst I'm playing advantage, isn't it? It is, uh, but it's foul play. Um, yeah. OK, and are we talking more than a penalty or just a penalty for the net grab? Mate, I want to just look together about where that contact is. Yeah, OK. OK. Will this help us? Sorry, mate. We're just trying to get a different angle, the best angle for you. This okay. is the best now, angle. Now, Wynne Jones goes in there. In comes Willemsa. You can see, oof, oh, it's around the face okay, as mate, well so as the neck. Okay, so that angle clearly shows it a bit worse than we first thought, doesn't it? So uh, um, let's let's uh, see what we're going to do here. We've clearly got foul play. The number from France is? It's five France. Five, five blue. France. Um, the net grab is around his neck and then he yanks him off. It's more than a penalty, this. We're probably looking at a yellow card, aren't we? Um, mate, yeah, and there's contact um, um, around the eye area. I'm not saying there's direct contact uh, to the eyes, but there's a contact with the eye area, so it is more than a penalty. It is a yellow card, I agree. Yeah, and we're, we're quite happy that there isn't any clear contact with the eye, are we? Um, um, I'll have one more look. It's OK, it's just important whether... If it's clear eye gouge, it's a red... If it's just an accidental slipping up, then it's a yellow. So we've got to be quite clear on the two things that we're seeing here. Um, that's what we're looking for, mate. Okay. We're just looking for that clear angle. It's just and whether I... it slips up around the eye area or it goes into yeah. the eye. And I need the number, lad. Was it number five, was it? Hope you didn't have plans for this evening or the rest of your day, because we could be here one. So here's five blue arriving, his hand around, and then... Oh, yeah. Oh, that's not looking. That's Every ugly. time you see it, okay. it gets so it's worse. definitely around that area, mate. Um, I'm still on a yellow card here, unless this angle can show me he definitely catches his eye. No, it's not. 
Mate, because just, Charles, just give me a chance. Just give me a chance. This is a difficult role as it is, so just give me a second. He's just crying. Please, <laughs> uh, Shut up, shut up, shut up. Mate, um, Barnsley, from what, what I'm seeing here, mate, that's slow-mo. Matthew, that slow-mo is clearly showing fingers in the eye area. Mate, I agree with you. It is not deliberate, but he has got his fingers around the head and they have made contact with the eye area. So we're looking now at a red card, not a yellow, aren't we? We are. So that's the clip from the game. Wayne, looking, looking back at that, could you just talk us through the uh, communication process between you and Luke and, and, and the teamwork and, and, and how that led to the decision being made? It goes back to the, the preparation point. Um, that we've discussed already um, on this pod is that Luke and I have worked together probably for the last five or six years, you know, running touch for one another um, in those, uh, in the premiership, in European matches, in international matches. So we have prepared for those types of incidents where Luke didn't see it um, during the match. Um, I picked it up sitting in, in the, in the studio kind of booth, and thought, right, we need to we need to look at this. This looks like what looked like a, a head grab. You know, you know that to move a player off the breakdown, you can't grab someone um, by the head. You've got to drive them back. You know, you've got to um, grasp hold of them, not touch the head or neck area. So, I said to Luke that Luke, that I've just found this footage which shows that you know there is foul play. So I think we're gonna have to rule off the try here. But then as soon as we started to look at that together, we realised that we were dealing with something other than just um, a net grab. And it is that ability to be able to uh, challenge each other, to make sure that we're all agreed um, on the facts. And, and that doesn't come down to, you know, churning up at the Stade de France 90 minutes before the game and discussing that. That's taken, you know, years of working together and feeling comfortable and that you might, first of all, disagree or you might be seeing different things. But... What Luke did really well there is, you know, he led he led the team of officials. You know, it wasn't just me. It was Matthew Carley um, on the sideline and Tom Foley on the sideline. You know, an English team of um, team of four there, all working together, um, just to you know, who had been working together for quite a while. So um, that that's what the preparation uh, allows us to do. Now, you know, it's interesting, Ben, that you said. But um, you know, if you're a French person, you don't like the decision. The Welsh, um, um, the Welsh would have loved that decision. I think everyone understood that decision making. And when you go, you go back to what we discussed um, slightly earlier around, well, you mightn't always agree with the decision, but if you understand the process, you can you can live with it. And I think that's one of those decisions where most people thought that decision was accurate. Most people understood why it was given. And it was quite interesting the week after I was refereeing Scotland versus France in the Stade de France um, again. And the player who got sent off um, obviously wasn't allowed to play that week, but came across um, before the match, had a five minute chat with us, um, you know, apologised again because he apologised straight after the match for, for the incident. But also then we just discussed how it happened. Obviously, he hadn't intended to do it. And that's what he said in his evidence um, but he explained kind of the reasons how that had happened. And that's what's special about, about rugby is that, you know, interaction, again, between players, coaches and referees. You know, we are all trying to, to get the game a bit better. Thanks, Wayne. We're, we're coming towards the end of our time. Um, 
I'm, I'm actually going to throw in a quick freebie because you mentioned how you work with, uh, with, with players. Who, who is the hardest player you've had to ref? Oh, uh, I used to be um, petrified. You know, I, I, first of all, I've, I've been very, very lucky. I've, I've worked with, um, you know, some of the, the great players of all times and, you know, the, the names of um, Richie McCall and, you know, David Pocock and John Schmidt, you know, um, they are players who are well known across the game or respected across the game for a reason. And the same for, for, for refereeing. They were, they were great captains and they were great people to work with. Um, but I, I was petrified of, of Martin Johnson, if I'm honest. You know, when I started off my, my career um, as, um, you know, young premiership referee, you often get sent to uh, the likes of Welford Road um, to test, you know, to test how you can deal with those pressurised environments. You know, how do you deal with 20,000 people telling you what decision you should make? Um, and um, I was sent up there and often it was, you, you would get sent to Welford Road when it was, you know, you'd have a top of the table team, which Leicester were at the time against someone who perhaps weren't doing as well at the bottom of the table um, when there wasn't a lot in the game, you know, may, maybe relegation had already been decided um, and so a team couldn't be relegated or they'd already been relegated. And I was first sent there when um, were, when um, Leeds were playing Leicester. Um, it was towards the end. I think it was the last season of, of Martin's career and it was the first season in the premiership of my career. Um, and after about 70 minutes, Leeds, Leeds were losing by 70 points to three and their scrum half took a very quick tap penalty. Um, and he was absolutely flattened after about 30 centimetres. And you, you all know that you've got to let someone run 10 metres before you can tackle them. Um, so I blew my whistle and I thought, well, that's, that's very cynical offending. I'm, I'm going to have to sin bin this player. So I looked down onto the floor and um, I saw the scrum half from Leeds, a, a, a guy called Scott Beerman, um, lying there, having been flattened. And on top of him um, lay Martin Johnson. So I thought, oh, no, I'm going to have to sin bin the England and uh, Lions, you know, winning captain here. So as he stood up, um, I said, I'm very sorry, sir, and issued a, um, a yellow card to which he replied, it's all right, Barnsley. It's the only decision you've got right all day. <laughs> um, <laughs> so you, you can kind of understand, you know, my, my, my kind of um, my, um, my, my fear of him, I suppose. He was, um, he was a fan fantastic captain. And then I got to work with him when he coached England um, and, you know, so we had we had a, a better working relationship there, where I where I thought I didn't have to apologise or call him sir at every opportunity. Um, but he was probably the most, you know, intimidating of players that I've ever worked with. Wayne, you know, you said first and foremost you started as a rugby player and you're a fan of of the game first and foremost. But from a ref, from your perspective as a referee, do you ever get a chance to enjoy the game as a fan would? Or do you have to sort of wait after the game once you, re you review it on TV to sort of really appreciate a great try or to really appreciate how much of a kind of classic encounter one game might be? You know, we're all rugby fans. We've all seen some, you know, exhilarating games and we've all seen some games which are a bit dull. But, you know, from your perspective on the pitch, do you, how much do you, are you aware of the kind of spectacle that, that we're seeing either on the TV or in the stands? Oh, yeah. There's always this misconception that referees are just there to spoil people's afternoons um, and we don't actually love the game. But the reason we've all, all referees have become involved in the game is because we love it and we want to be part of it, you know. And I, you know, I've got two children and I want them to be involved in the sport as well because I think it's a special sport. Um, 
But yeah, you look, you, you appreciate you're standing in the Millennium Stadium, now the Principality Stadium, with 78,000 people with the roof shut and singing the Welsh National Anthem. If you can't appreciate that, there's not a lot in sport that you're going to appreciate. Or, you know, you're standing at Eden Park as the hacker takes place and, you know, the, the Australian teams are linked arm in arm as the hacker led by Aaron Smith, you know, marches up the, up the field. You know, you appreciate those moments, but you also appreciate being involved in in wonderful games of rugby. And you, you I refereed the Premiership semi-final between um, Bristol and Harlequins a couple of weeks back. And you're, you're involved in that game thinking, wow, this is a pretty special game. You know, this is end-to-end stuff. Both teams giving it absolute everything. Um you know, and being part of the Lions tour, you realise that you're part of something special. Twelve years ago, I was over here when there were touring fans, and you get to, you got to see all all the red shirts, you know, going around South Africa, but also then seeing the, the South African fans all all meeting up in the big kind of um, uh, fan zones. And you, as a, as a ref, you could stroll down to them, you could see them. Um, the the 2015 World Cup, the quarterfinal and semi-final that I refereed were played at Twickenham. I live in Twickenham and so uh, two hours before the match you would usually arrive in car com- convoy and be dropped off um, at the stadium but we thought well this is never going to happen again so all of the the team that I was involved with met at my house, we had lunch there and then we walked across from my house to the stadium, you know, along with 80,000 fans who, who'd got tickets for the game. So you're strolling through the West Car Park at Twickenham with the fans of the game and thinking, this is pretty special. That's what all that preparation has gone into. So, of course, you know, we're fans. Of course, we recognise um, when we're involved in special moments, but also special moments around the game. Um, and so, yeah, dispel that belief that we're, you know, that we're just there to upset all, all Welsh or English fans. That's fantastic. Um, I think it's time for our two signature questions. And I'm actually really excited about asking the first one. Uh, Wayne, what, what is your biggest mistake that you've made? <laughs> um, well, there's, there's, there's probably a lot that different fans around the, um, around the world would probably highlight. But um, I always remember one from earlier on in my career where um, as a referee, I, I you know, have shorts in your pocket and I always put my red card in my uh, right pocket, red for right, and yellow card in my left pocket. Um, and um, I was refereeing one of, my, one of my first games in the championships at the second division in English rugby. And um, there was a little scuffle between the two teams. Um, this was between Mosley, who play over towards Birmingham Way and Worcester, so a bit of a, you know, kind of a, a West Midlands derby. And there was a bit of a scuffle and two players got up and I, I'd seen the player who had started it. I thought, right, I'm going to draw a line under this really early. So um, I, um, I went into my left pocket and produced a card and he looked at me in shock. I went, no, come on. Off you go. Wouldn't any need for that. So I put it back in my pocket. Um, after about 15 minutes of the game, I turned to the captain of, uh, of Mosley and said, um, um, when's he coming back? Isn't he due on in a minute? And he looked at me as if I was like taking a Michael a little bit. Uh, he's like, well, why would he come back on? I'm like, well, what do you mean? He said, well, you've sent him off. So I then look into my pocket and I got the cards the wrong way round. So this poor fellow who was only meant to have 10 minutes off was off for the rest of the game just because I hadn't checked which pocket my red card was in. Um, 
So um, yeah, that, that that's probably not my 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 greatest um, achievement of all time. But now I am uber careful um, before a match and knowing which pockets in. And you'll see just before I run out, every single time I just look at my right and left pocket. So you know, back to learning from your your mistakes. That's one that I hope I will never make again. That's brilliant. Um, and our final question. It might be brilliant, Andrew. It wasn't so brilliant for the player who got a two-week ban on the back of it. <laughs> uh, I'm sure he's forgiven you by now. Um, the, the final question, any book recommendations? You obviously mentioned um, you know, Rebel, um, Rebel, Rebel Alligators, I think. Yeah. Any other recommendations for us? Well, because uh, I'm away from home, so it'll be three weeks away from home, but then um, 10 days in isolation when I come back. So I have bought a stack of books, which I, I'm sure like everyone, you know, um, at Christmas and birthdays, you, you get a new new lot of books and your pile gets bigger and bigger and the ones that you're wanting to read. So um, it's a bit of a light read. Um, and I guess this is a, a, a nod at my legal background. I'm currently reading one of John Grisham's, obviously. Every lawyer needs a good Grisham book. Um, but he's actually written one um, around uh, basketball, which is a non-legal one, which I'm oh, 100 pages in called um, Suli, I think it's called. So I'm currently re- reading that. Um, but also um, I've got um, as a, a fantastic, well, I guess he's a, what's known as a team builder, but he was a, a lawyer previously uh, called Owen Eastwood. Um, Owen did some work with the uh, with the England um, rugby team uh, under Stuart Lancaster's era, and um, but also done a lot of work now with the All Blacks and with uh, the South African cricket team. I think he's currently doing some work with Man City and Chelsea around um, around belonging to a team, and, he, and he's written his first book called Belonging. Um, and um, I'm halfway through that as well, and I really like Owen as a as a speaker and as a writer. So. Um, that's that anyone who's interested in building teams um, should get on Amazon and have a look at Owen Owen's first uh, book, which is a cracking little read um, and talks about the, the sense of belonging to a team. So that, there's my two tips for you, Andrew. That's uh, that's brilliant. Um, Wayne, really appreciate you coming on. I know you're a busy man over there. Enjoy the rest of the tour. And thank you so much for joining us. It's been really interesting. Our pleasure. Thanks for having me on.